But just in case you're here for the first time or coming into his uh, contact uh, with his ministry for the first time, just to uh, give you a little bit of a background that Dr. Frank Churik is a dynamic speaker and award-winning author and co-author of four books, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, Correct, Not Politically Correct, and Legislating Morality. As the president of crossexamine.org, Frank presents powerful, entertaining evidence for Christianity at churches, high schools, and at secular college campuses that often begin hostile to his message. He's also debated several prominent atheists, including Christopher Hitchens and David Silverman, the president of American Atheists. Frank hosts an hour-long TV program each week called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. His radio program is called Cross-Examined with Frank Turek. He's widely featured guest in the media as a leading apologetics expert and cultural commentator. He's appeared on hundreds of radio programs and many top TV programs. He's a former aviator in the United States Navy and has a master's degree from George Washington University and a doctorate from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He and his wife Stephanie are blessed with three grown sons. Would you welcome Frank as he comes to speak tonight? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Where is God? I don't mean where is he physically, but where is he when tragedy strikes? I happened to turn on my computer last night about 10.30. I saw a tweet from Justin Brierley. You know who Justin is, Premier Christian Radio. Said attack on London Bridge. We all know what's happened since then. Where was God? Where's this good God we claim that cares about people and loves people? Why would he allow such a thing to occur? In fact, why are you, some of you are in church right now. You probably shouldn't be in church right now. Some of you have watched your children die. Some of you have been victims of abuse. Some of you may be being abused right now. Some of you have lost fortunes, lost jobs, lost relationships. Some of you have heard the dreaded word cancer. Some of you have been victims of drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Some of you were abused as children by parents and uncles and other relatives. Some of you have been torn apart by divorce. And in every one of those instances, you asked God to take that away from you, and he said no. Maybe it's because the God we say we serve doesn't really exist. I mean, if he is good and he is all loving, why all this pain? Why all this suffering? Why all this evil? Let me ask you a question. 
If you could have stopped that attack last night, would you have stopped it? Then why didn't God stop it? Where is he? Maybe he's just your imaginary friend in the sky. You ever hear people tell you that? It's just your imaginary friend in the sky. Or maybe, even if he does exist, he's evil, as Richard Dawkins has said. The famous atheist in his book, The God Delusion, and he thinks you're deluded if you believe in God. Here's what he said about the God of the Old Testament. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. And he's a sadomasochist as well. Now, if you just take a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you might agree with Dawkins. What's all this business about killing the Canaanites? This is a loving God? Please. How many people in here have ever been to Corinth, Greece? You ever been to Corinth? I love going to Corinth because this is actually the way Corinth looked when Paul was there. In other words, there's no city built on top of it, on top of the ruins. These are the ruins. And as you know, Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. And Second Corinthians has a lot to do with suffering. And in Second Corinthians, Paul says this to us and the Corinthians about what we ought to do when people try and bring up arguments against, against God. Here's what he said. We destroy people's arguments and every proud thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And he says, we take every thought captive to Christ. What I'd like to try and do here tonight is take arguments against God, particularly from the subject of evil, because it's on our minds right now. I know yesterday, if those of you were here, I said I was going to talk about reason and science. But in talking to Pastor Colin and uh, Amanda, we were just talking, Gabriel, we're talking up there, what, sh what should we do? And we said, given what happened last night, we ought to do this. Now, if you have questions about reason and science, we can get to that during the Q&A. But my thesis here tonight is this. What if your best arguments to doubt God show that he actually exists? What if your best arguments to doubt God actually show that he exists? And I think that's exactly what's going on. In fact, the book that Bruce mentioned is called Stealing from God. And I think atheists are stealing from God to argue against him. They are committing intellectual crimes. What do I mean by that? Crimes is an acronym. It stands for causality, reason, information, morality, evil, and science. And what this book does is it goes through all of these topics here and it points out that atheists try and say, well, causality proves there's no God or reason proves there's no God or evil proves there's, there's no God or science proves there's no God. And it, it tries to show, and I'll leave, you, I'll leave it up to you to see, see if I've been successful here, but it tries to show that none of these things disprove God. In fact, none of these things would exist unless God existed. 
In fact, what we're going to talk about tonight is this question of evil. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and do it in three steps. The first step is, does evil disprove God? Did the attack last night, for example, show there's no God? That's what we're going to talk about first. Now, if evil doesn't disprove God, what's the purpose of evil? If God has a purpose for it, what is it? And then finally, what is God's solution to evil? Now, I need to warn you up front that evil is not just a problem for the head, it's also a problem for the heart. So what I might say here tonight, if you're going through evil and suffering right now, it might not resonate. Why? Because I'm going to give the philosophical answer to this question. But if you're going through evil and suffering right now, you don't need the philosophical answer, at least not right now. You want the pastoral answer. You don't need a philosopher. You need a pastor. You don't need me. You need Pastor Colin or somebody else. So I'm just warning you right now. You may go, yeah, okay, Frank, that really doesn't resonate with me. But let me say this, that if you're going through pain, evil, and suffering, the first step toward recovery is to intellectually know that the pain and suffering you're going through actually can bring good even if you never find out what that good is. There is a God, and he is allowing this to happen for a reason. You may never find the reason out. But if you trust God, you can trust him with your life and your eternity. So with that said, we got to start here at point one. You guys ready to go? Now, some of you, how many, how many of you were here uh, this, uh, yesterday or the day before or were somewhere else at the time? You guys fall for that every time, don't you? No, no. How many, how many were not here, not here uh, this weekend? You guys are probably not even saved. Okay, okay. Just, they didn't show up, what can I say? Some of what I'm gonna say is gonna be a repeat from some of the questions you asked. So for those of you who were here, give me a little grace here. You're gonna hear a few of the same things. Uh, but we're gonna start here, right point one. Does evil disprove God? You guys ready? All right, here we go. Whenever you're trying to answer a question like this, you've gotta put the question in context. And what I'm going to do here is list arguments for and against God. And many of the arguments that we, I'm going to put in the yes column, we covered this past weekend. So for those of you that weren't here, you're not going to know the answer. I don't have time to go through it all, obviously. For those that were here, you'll realize these are some of the same arguments we talked about this weekend. Here are some arguments for the existence of God. Again, we can't go into detail here. The beginning of the universe shows that there must be a being like God. Because if space, matter, and time had a beginning, whatever created space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time, right? In other words, the being must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent. Those are the things we talked about this weekend. And by the way, even atheists are admitting the universe had a beginning. So if atheists are admitting the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The fine-tuning of the universe, we talked a lot about that yesterday. Also, the fact that there's information found in DNA, which seems to come from an intelligent being. Life itself seems to be the, the, uh, the product of, of an intelligent being, as does consciousness and free will. The very ability that we have to be conscious and to make choices seems to imply there's a, there's a mind out there that has given us this ability, just in a more limited way than he has. Also, the very fact that there is intelligence and reason out there. Look, 
either matter came from mind or mind came from matter. That's the only two worldviews at the end. And we never see dead matter giving us mind, but we can perceive of a mind giving us matter. The ultimate reality is a mind. That's what we mean when we say God. Why are we intelligent at all? Why can we ascertain truths about the real world with our minds? Why does reason exist? Because the architect of reality is reasonable. Also, the laws of nature, the very laws of nature that we use to do science, why are they so precise? Why are they so orderly? Why do they do the same thing over and over again? Because there's an orderer out there that created these laws and sustains these laws. Also, objective morality. We'll get into that a little bit here. We talked about it this weekend, that if one thing is morally wrong out there, just one, there has to be a standard of righteousness out there. What is that standard? That's God's nature. Nice try. That was close. Old Testament prophecy, I think, shows that there at least is some inspiration in the Old Testament from a divine source. Just read Isaiah chapter 53, if you doubt me on that. You'll read a prophecy of Jesus written 700 years in advance. And, of course, the resurrection itself shows, as we talked about yesterday, that God certainly was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, all the miracles Jesus did show that he has a divine source. Now, that's some of the evidence for the existence of God. Here's the main argument against God. Evil. Now... Is this really an argument against God? Why not? Why is it not an argument against God? This is the interactive portion of the program. <coughs> Go ahead. It does give, he does give us free will. In order to know there's evil, you've got to know there's good. In fact, this is not... An argument against God, it's an argument for God. You say, how can that be? Because objective evil presupposes objective good, and objective good requires God. What do we mean by objective good? There's something that transcends humanity that is, in its essence, what we call good, or goodness, or righteousness, or justice. As we, we mentioned earlier this weekend, if you were to ask somebody how much carbon is in the justice molecule... They're going to go, what? Justice isn't a molecule. It's not made of molecules. It's not a material. It's an immaterial reality. And everybody in here knows there are certain things that are not just. Well, if something's not just, something must be just. And that's what we mean by God. In fact, do you know there is nobody in the world, regardless of their worldview practically... I don't care if they're an atheist, an agnostic, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, a New Ager, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness. doesn't matter. If you ask any one of those people what's wrong with the world, nobody's going to say nothing. Right? Everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. Well, if there's something wrong with the world, there must be something known as right. In fact, C.S. Lewis... During World War II, right here near London, was doing BBC broadcasts. And before uh, 
World War II, 10 or so years prior to that, he was an atheist. And he realized that his argument for atheism was wrong, that it didn't work. You know what his argument was for atheism was? There's too much evil in the world. He ultimately put that in a book called Mere Christianity. Here's what he wrote about evil. C.S. Lewis said this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I calling, or what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, you wouldn't know what a crooked line was unless you knew what a straight line was. You wouldn't know what injustice was unless you knew what justice was. Be this is because, you see, evil isn't a thing in itself. Evil is a lack in a good thing. It's a parasite in a good thing. For example, evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of the car, you got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you got nothing. Evil is like rot in a tree. If you take all the rot out of a tree, you got a better tree. If you take all the tree out of the rot, you got nothing. See, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists in good. Well, if something is really evil out there, and we all know certain things are evil, like what? Like driving vans into people and then stabbing innocent people on London Bridge. Do we all agree that's evil? If that's evil, God exists. Because he's the standard of good by which we'd even know what evil was. That's the point. In fact, Lewis put it this way profoundly, I thought, the shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine. In other words, in order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. So if there's any shadows out there in the world, if there's any injustice out there in the world, then God exists. Now you can say, well, why would God allow such injustice to continue? That's the next question. All I'm trying to say here is, is that if there's evil, then there's good, and if there's good, God exists. In fact, let's go back to Dawkins' famous quote. Do you notice the word he has right in the middle of this quote? Unjust. Where's he getting that from? Where's he getting unjust from? You know where he's getting it from? He's stealing it from God. Nothing's unjust. In fact, if there's no God, in fact, in another quote, in another book, Dawkins said this. He said, in a world of blind, pitiless indifference, there is no justice or injustice. There is no good or bad. Some people are going to get lucky and other people are going to get hurt. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. He said, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. And yet, now he's trying to say the God of the Bible is unjust. Wait a minute, Richard. If there's no God, the God of the Bible... You, you, you can't complain against the God of the Bible because you have no standard by which to judge the God of the Bible unjust. Now, as an atheist, he can't judge anything just or unjust in, a, in an objective way. What he could do is say, look, okay, I'm no longer an atheist, I'm a theist, but the God of the Bible is not the true God. That's a fair point. You could say that, but then you've got to deal with all the evidence that shows that the Bible is true and that Jesus did really rise from the dead. Now, what about the Canaanites and all that? We handle that in the Stealing from God book. I don't have time to get into it now. But the point here is, is that if there's injustice, there must be justice. In fact, Christopher Hitchens did the same thing. In fact, Christopher Hitchens said, religion is evil. In fact, look at the title of his book. 
How religion poisons everything. What does that word poison mean in this context? It's just a fun way of saying religion is evil, right? But he has no standard by which to judge religion evil because he's an atheist. He's got, he's, he, he, he just thinks he's made of molecules and all, just molecules exist. Well, how can good or evil exist if all that exists are molecules? As I mentioned yesterday, he says religion poisons everything, but religion doesn't poison everything. Everything poisons religion, right? I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. In fact, in the second debate, I said to him, I said, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus tells me to live up to. I can't be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. I can't live up to that ethic. But if I could, I wouldn't need a savior. In fact, your book, which talks about all the evil religious people have done, much of it I agree with. We have done evil, but that's why we need a savior. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need one. So when people say, I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there, you know what we ought to say? Come on down, we got room for one more. <laughs> of course we're all hypocrites. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need a savior. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. Yeah, I know we're saints theologically because Christ has covered us with his blood, but we're still, we still struggle with sin, don't we? Of course we're hypocrites, so invite some of your hypocrite friends down with you. And by the way, uh, his brother, Peter Hitchens, he's, he's, he's a, here in Britain as well. Um, he had a, he's a Christian. He had a debate with Christopher, maybe a couple of debates, and he wrote a book called The Rage Against God. And uh, Christopher was mad at God. You could just tell. I mean, he called God a cosmic North Korean dictator peering in on our sex lives. Which is, that's great imagery if you're an atheist, right? It was just really bad, really mad at God. So, by the way, at the end of both debates, I said, you can sum up Christopher Hitchens' position in one sentence. Here it is. There is no God, and I hate him. <laughs> He's mad. Now, his brother Peter said this about his book. The book which says God is not great, really is about all the evil religious people have done. Peter said the book should not be called God's not great. The book should be called man is not great. Which is exactly why Jesus had to come. Because we're not great. All have fallen short. We're all evil. That's why we need a savior. By the way, the people that did the attack last night, they're evil, but so are we. They're made in the image of God, so are we. They need a savior, so do we. Right? Now, there's one other thing I want to mention about this before we go to the next point. This guy is David Berlinski. He teaches in France. He's not a believer. He's a Jewish agnostic. But he wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion, which is answering the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, and he's a brilliant writer. Again, he's not a Christian, but he skewers Dawkins on so many of Dawkins' points. And one of the, the points that you hear from the new atheists out there is that religion causes all the wars. In fact, I was taking a cab ride today. I got in the cab, and uh, we were talking a little bit about the attacks last night, and the guy goes, that's the problem. Religion causes all the wars. 
And I said to him, well, actually, I used to believe that too, but I did a little research, and um, that's actually not true. What percentage of wars are caused by religion, according to the Encyclopedia of War? Does anyone know? Anyone? Any guesses? No, I wouldn't say zero. <laughs> 25%? The actual number, according to the Encyclopedia of War, is 7%. And if you take Islam out of it, 3%. Now, just think about the past century. World War I, caused by religion? No. World War II, caused by religion? No. Korean War, caused by religion? No. Vietnam War, caused by religion? No. Iraq War, caused by religion? No. Saddam wanted oil. Any of those wars caused by religion? No. It's a myth that wars are caused by religion. I mean, some are, but very few. In fact, this led David Berlinski to write this in his book. I love this statement he says here. Just who has imposed on the suffering human race poison gas, barbed wire, high explosives, experiments in eugenics, the formula for Zyklon B, which is what they use in the gas chambers, heavy artillery, pseudoscientific justifications for mass murder, cluster bombs, attack submarines, napalm, intercontinental ballistic missiles, military space platforms, and nuclear weapons? If memory serves, it was not the Vatican. No, religion doesn't cause all the wars. Sometimes religious people cause problems. We agree with that. But no, it doesn't cause all the wars. In fact, Berlinski points this out in a kind of a sarcastic way, as you can see here. And you might want to reiterate that when people say these things to you. First of all, if they're not believers at all, if they're not Christians at all, you might say, what's wrong with war? Why is that bad? According to what standard, right? By what standard is war bad? By, by what standard is killing people bad? Unless there's a standard of good, you can't say it's bad, right? All right, so I actually think, to sum this section up, that evil ought not be on this side. We've got to move evil over here. Because evil actually shows that God exists. I, I know that sounds counterintuitive. But if evil exists, God exists. Not because God is doing evil, but because he is the standard of good by which we even know what evil was. So evil doesn't disprove God. Okay, next point. What's the purpose of evil then? If it doesn't disprove God, what's the purpose for it? Uh, a number of years ago, I was on the uh, Michigan State campus in Michigan United States, and uh, I was doing, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist seminar, similar to the one we did the other day, just a lot shorter, and uh, I knew there was an atheist in the audience, a pretty militant atheist, uh, right from the very beginning. Why? Because he sat there from the beginning through the entire two-hour presentation looking like this. <laughs> he didn't crack a smile once. And I had some pretty good jokes in there. So I knew as soon as the Q&A came up, this guy was going to have some, some, some issues. Right? So I said, are there any questions? Immediately, his hand shut up. I said, yes, sir. He said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I said, sir, that is an excellent question. 
Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. You ever notice we're always complaining about God stopping somebody else? God, why don't you stop him? Why don't you stop her? We never think about God stopping us. Why didn't God stop those attackers last night? You probably asked yourself that question. Well, have you ever asked a question? Why didn't God stop you last night? Why didn't he? Did you do anything evil last night? Not to that extent. Yeah, but were you doing something evil last night? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Why didn't he stop you? Anyway, I said, sir, it really is a good question, and we could spend semesters talking about it, but we don't have semesters, so I want to show you a one minute and 46 second video. And I'll show it to you guys right now. There's a lot going on in this video. So you got to pay attention, one minute and 46 seconds. It's not a complete answer to the question, what's the purpose of evil, or why does God allow it? But it's, it's a doorway to an answer. Are you guys ready? All right, here we go. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies, and subatomic particles, and rainforests, and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle, or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if, when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing, but if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. If you want to see that again, you can see it on our website, crossexamine.org. You can share it with people. Now, that just basically points out that in order for love to exist, free will must exist. But the problem is with free will, you also open up the possibility for evil. So I showed that video at Michigan State that night. How do you think the atheist looked after I showed the video? Uh, yeah, he, uh, he looked like that. He said, that doesn't answer it completely. What about babies? Why did babies die? They didn't have any free choice in the matter. I said, sir, there is no way I can answer that question. What purpose would God have for allowing babies to die unless we knew what the purpose to life was? Because there's no purpose to anything if there's no purpose to life. So since I had just been through the evidence that Christianity was true, I said, let's go to the scriptures and see what the purpose of life is. 
What is the purpose of life? This is the interactive portion of the program. What, what, why are we here? To get a whole bunch of stuff, then you die? What? What? Say again. Yes, we are here for God's purpose, and what is it? To know him and enjoy him forever, straight from the Westminster Confession, not the Bible. <laughs> but close, where would you get that from the Bible? Well, here's what Jesus says when he's praying to the Father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. Now, when we say know God, remember, we're not talking about just knowing that he exists. Even the demons know that he exists, but they tremble, according to James. It's to trust in God. After you know that he exists, trust in him. Now, notice eternal life is not just merely endless time. It's actually not time anyway. It's eternity. Eternal life is actually a quality. It's a quality to know God. And you've begun eternal life as soon as you believe. Jesus says, he who believes has passed from death into life. It'll be more fully manifested in you when you're glorified, when you pass into the next life. But if you want to have eternal life, you can have it right now by trusting in Christ. There's just one problem. If this is the purpose of life, to know God, knowing and growing in God often requires pain. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it very well. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Sometimes you only look up when you're on your back, he said. How many people in this room came to Christ partially through pain and suffering? Can I see your hands, please? Look, at the, look around the room. It's about 30, maybe 40% of us. How many people have grown significantly through pain and suffering? Just about everyone else, right? Because pain can refine us. Suffering can make us more like Jesus. In fact, do you know that Hebrews actually says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering? If Jesus learns obedience through suffering, what about fallen creatures like us? In fact, the scriptures talk about this a lot. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Joy? What? Do you count it all joy? Got this trial. I'm in the middle of it. Yippee. Who does that? Do you do that? Count it all joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces patience. And he goes on to say patience perfects you. It's very hard to develop patience without suffering. Paul says we glory in tribulation. Do you glory in tribulation? Never have I gloried in tribulation. But Paul says, yep, that's what you're supposed to do. We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. By the way, what do we say about kids who get everything they want? They're spoiled. What's spoiled about them? What's spoiled? Their character's spoiled. 
Why? Because if you give a kid everything he or she wants, you will destroy them. They will, because it'll become more and more about them. If they don't have some people saying no, if they don't have some people causing them to suffer a little bit, they are going to become even more moral monsters than they already are. I mean, why do we call kids the terrible twos when they're in the terrible twos, right? You don't have to teach kids to be selfish, do you? You've got to teach them to be generous. They're born knowing mine. No, not fair. It's never yours. Let me do it your way. Never. Our character is spoiled if we don't go through tribulation. In fact, suffering develops character, and some virtues can only be developed through evil and trial. It's very difficult to develop courage without danger. It's very difficult to develop perseverance without obstacles. It's very difficult to develop compassion unless somebody is suffering. It's hard to develop patience without tribulation. I'm basically an impatient person. In fact, I've been praying for patience for quite a while, and frankly, I'm getting tired of waiting for it. <laughs> By the way, never pray for patience. Why? Everything will go wrong that day. That's the only way you're going to learn. It's hard to develop character without adversity, and it's very difficult to develop faith, which is really means trust, without need. Why does Jesus say it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven? Because the rich man thinks he doesn't need God. He can do everything himself. Now, by the way, thankfully, Jesus did not say it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven, because if that were the case, most of us couldn't get in. Because by the world standard, we're rich. And for you guys that live in London, I think you're rich. This place is pricey. In fact, you've probably heard this, no pain, no gain. I know it's a cliche, but it's true. Actually, it could be improved if we said more pain, more gain. In fact, Paul, when he sums up his section on suffering... In 2 Corinthians 4, here's what he says. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We keep our eyes on what is unseen, not on what is seen. Everything you see is going to go away. I'm going to give you a trivial example of this, on how this works, and how you can actually enhance your capacity to enjoy God and enhance your character in doing so by going through difficulty. Let's suppose that um, Great Britain goes to the World Cup and wins the World Cup next time. Are you guys for that? I know there's too many Nigerians in here. They're going, no. No, Nigeria's going. All right, whatever your favorite country or team is, let's just say that they spend four years training for this, four years playing, and say there's a guy on the team who isn't well-liked by the fans. He's maligned, but then he gets in the World Cup, and actually in the final game, he scores the winning goal in overtime. Now, he holds the World Cup up, and all his teammates hold up the World Cup. Let me ask you a question. When he holds up the World Cup, does he enjoy it a little bit more 
than the guy who hardly played at all, all four years? Why? Because he went through all the pain, all the suffering, all the difficulty, all the people that told him he couldn't do it, that he wasn't very good. He enhanced his capacity to enjoy the reward once it came. Same thing is true here on earth. You've got to be in the game to enhance your capacity. You've got to go through difficulty. Sometimes you've got to go through the wilderness before you get to the promised land. If you'd ever go through the wilderness, you're probably going to be an inch deep. So when God is bringing you through difficulty, he's bringing, through, bringing you through difficulty because he loves you. He disciplines those he loves. He says in Hebrews chapter 12. And not only that, this isn't just a pipe dream. Paul actually says suffering will bring a greater good, even though you may never see it. The famous verse in Romans 8 says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. What does he say? All things work together for good. Now, back at Michigan State, I went through all this in a shorter time period. How do you think the atheist looked after I did this? Yeah, he, uh, he looked like that. <laughs> he said, okay, I can see how God can use evil for good in some circumstances, how it can enhance your capacity, how it can bring character and all these things, soul building it's called. However, there's some evil out there that has absolutely no good and will never bring good. You can't think of a reason it could bring good. And I said to him, sir, how could you know that? Are you omniscient? Do you know all things? In fact, in researching this topic for the book, I ran across something that revolutionized my thinking on this and solved a lot of problems in my own thinking. It's called the ripple effect. Have you heard of the ripple effect? The ripple effect, sometimes called the butterfly effect, which says that a butterfly flapping its wings off South Africa could create a series of events that ultimately lead to a hurricane off New Orleans. We can't trace that series of events, all those dominoes that fall, but an omniscient being could. He knows the end from the beginning. In other words, every event that occurs here on Earth, even the tragic event last night, ripples forward into the future and affects trillions of other events and billions, potentially, of people. And the ripple effect, we may never see the outcome of. It could be that a baby dying today, or a tr the tragedy that occurred last night, might ripple forward into the future and somehow cause a great evangelist to arise 500 years from now who saves millions of people, partially due to what happened last night, partially due to what happened when a baby dies or some other tragedy occurs. We can't trace all that, but of course the being beyond it all, who created it all, he can see how all that works together for good. In fact, you even see the ripple effect in Scripture. You know about Joseph in the Old Testament and his brothers? They sell him into slavery. They don't like him because he's dad's favorite and so they sell him into slavery, and somehow he gets to Egypt and he rises to prominence in Egypt. And uh, when a famine hits Israel, 
His own family comes to Israel, I mean to Egypt, to escape the famine, and Joseph is in a position to help them. Now, what could he have done? What would you or I may have done? Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Payback time. That's not what Joseph did. What did Joseph do? Here's what he said. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That evil that they perpetrated on him rippled forward into the future and was for their own good, actually, and the good of many others. So here's the point. While respecting free choice of human beings, God can bring good from evil. He can bring good from evil due to the ripple effect. We can't even see it, but God can. In fact, sometimes the problem is put this way. We started off with the problem. Remember we said, if you could have stopped the attack last night, would you have done it? You, everyone would have, right? Yeah, of course we would have. And sometimes it's put this way about God. Well, if he's all-loving and all-powerful, why didn't he stop the attack last night? You would have. I would have. You know what's left out of this uh, supposed problem here, or supposed dilemma? You've left out the fact that God is also all-wise. One of the most profound things ever said on this topic was said by a pastor at Notre Dame in Paris 150 years ago. Here's what he said about this. He said, if you would concede me his power, if God would concede me his power for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. God's not obligated to stop evil. Why? Because he wants us to have free will, to love, and he can even bring good ultimately from evil, even if we never see what that good is. That's why he keeps telling Job, trust me, Job. That's the whole theme of the book of Job, trust me. You don't even know how the physical universe works, Job, but you're going to tell me how the moral universe works? Now, back at Michigan State, I said this, and then a man shot his hand up, sitting about 10 feet from the atheist. And so I said, yes, sir. And he said, I know of a woman who was raped. And then he looked over at the atheist. And then he looked back at me, and he said, the rape nearly destroyed this woman. In fact, she got pregnant as a result of the rape. But she decided that she was not going to punish the baby for the sin of the father. So she decided she was going to bring this baby to term. Then his voice began to crack. And he said, that baby turned out to be a boy. And that boy grew up to be a pastor. By this time, he's weeping openly in front of 200 people. And he said... That pastor has brought many people to Christ and has discipled many people in Christ. That baby who grew up to be a pastor is me. And then he looked over at the atheist and he said, if my mom can bring good from evil, so can God. And I said, 
you're dismissed. I mean, what else could I add to that? He had a better answer than I had. Now, how do you think the atheist looked after that? He was gone. <laughs> he ran out of the auditorium. But I learned who the pastor was. I said, sir, what's your name? He said, my name's Gary Bingham. I'm the pastor at, in a church in Marion, Indiana. He had driven three hours to be there that night. I said, how's your mom now? He said, well, mom's much better because she became a Christian four years ago. She wasn't not doing well until then. I said, well, please tell your mom, I know you've thanked her for saving your life, but that great deed she did has rippled forward into the future through you and now through this event here tonight. And then I put it in a column which ran over in the, in the United States and then I put it in the book, Stealing from God. So it's still rippling forward into the future, the good deed that she did. All right, so does evil disprove God? The answer is no. Does, what's the purpose of evil? God can use evil to bring him to himself and bring good from it. And sometimes we don't know the purpose, but we can trust God because he can see the end from the beginning and through the ripple effect he can make it happen. But we got to finally deal with this question, what's God's solution to evil? And before we do that, I need to ask you a question. Does God promise to protect Christians from evil and suffering? No. Why do we think he does, though? In our country, there's this crazy theology called the Word of Faith theology. I don't know how much you have it over here. But these are the kind of people that say, if you want to be healthy and wealthy, you just have enough faith. If you're not healthy and wealthy, you don't have enough faith. Send me $1,000 and you'll do fine. <laughs> while I drive around in my Rolls Royce. That theology can be easily refuted by one simple observation. What's the observation? Jesus and the apostles weren't healthy and wealthy. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. They lived brutal deaths or, or, or died brutal deaths for saying Jesus had risen from the dead or saying they were Christians. I mean, here's Peter being crucified upside down. In fact, what do you notice about all these heroes of the faith? What's the common thread running through all these people here? Every single one of them experienced intense suffering. Some of them martyrdom. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You ought to expect persecution. You ought to expect pain and suffering. But you ought to remember that it's for your good, ultimately. So what is God's ultimate solution then? God suffered himself. He entered humanity. He entered the bloodstream of humanity, put humanity over his deity, and actually allowed the creatures he came to save, who rebelled against him, to torture and kill him so he could, re he could reconcile with them. So his infinite justice and infinite love could be served, could be satisfied. And his pain can be our gain. I say can be. Why? Because you don't have to accept it. You don't have to accept it. You can resist it. Now, I mentioned this, I think, on Friday night. I'll mention it to you guys again. 
uh, because I was in a debate at the University of Michigan four years ago, and there was an atheist there who was uh, debating me, and he questioned, we had the opportunity to question one another, and he said, during his opportunity to question me, he said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. Toward the end of her life, somebody gave her the gospel, but she rejected it. Then she died. Is she in hell right now? I said, well, that's a tough question. So I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is now. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion or not. But if she didn't accept Christ before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. You see, because the assumption behind the question is what? That everybody wants to go to heaven. That is not true. Who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. Well, there are people who've been running from Jesus their entire lives. What's Jesus going to do in the afterlife? Okay, you're with me now. Get over here. How would that be loving? In fact, here's a question I asked the audience on uh, Friday, I think, or maybe Saturday. I'm going to ask you guys again. A question I like to ask people who are not Christians is this. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I just asked a Muslim that on Speaker's Corner about an hour and a half ago. He said, yes. I said, good. Check it out. It's true. <laughs> right? <laughs> but... <laughs> But you ask the question, why? Because so many times atheists on college campuses will say to me, no. And I'll say, no, wait a minute. I thought you were a beacon of reason. And I ask you, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And you say, no. How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They want to do their own thing. They don't want there to be a God. They want to be a God. They want to be God of their own lives. They don't want there to be an authority over them. You see, most people are not on a truth quest, they're on a happiness quest. And they'll do whatever they think they can to make themselves happy. And as we all know, you can make yourself happy over the short term, but over the long term, trying to do it your way, it's a disaster. The only way to get true contentment and happiness is to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. So, here's the question I want to ask you. If you're a Christian in here, I want you to ask yourself this question. Who do I know right now who isn't a Christian whom I'd like to be a Christian? You guys, everyone have somebody? Okay. Is the person you're thinking of right now on a relentless pursuit of truth, or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? How many say the person you're thinking of right now, they're on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know the truth. If it's true, they'll be a Christian. How many? How, how many? Do I, how many hands? I got a half a hand up there. There's another one back there. Okay, there's three. All right, we got three out of what, 300? All right, how many people in here, the person you're thinking of, they're, they're hostile or apathetic? Let me see your hands. That's just about everybody else, right? In other words, they don't want it to be true, so why would it be loving of God to pull them into his presence for all eternity? You say, Frank, but what about hell? That seems unjust. Let me ask you ladies a question in here. Ladies, have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? <laughs> Some of you are going, yeah, and he's sitting next to me right now. 
he will not leave me alone. When I said that at the University of Michigan, there was like a 700 people there, and one lady in the back said, yes! I said, is he sitting next to you right now? Well, suppose this man, ladies, keeps coming after you to ask you out, keeps asking you out, and you finally go, well, look, 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 I like you, but only as a Ladies, you're just sticking the knife in and you're turning it at that point, right? Because every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection, every one of us. Gentlemen, if you ever hear the dreaded friend rejection, let me save you a lot of time. Move on, she's not interested. Ladies, am I right? Right, in fact, in fact, she doesn't even like you as a friend. Because if she did, she'd be interested. Ladies, am I right? Yeah. Yep, see, look at that. They're now being honest. Why do you lie to us, ladies? You should just say, look, I don't even like you as a, as a friend. Get out of my face. No, you <laughs> Well, suppose this doesn't deter him. Suppose he keeps coming, he keeps coming. He says, look, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Run, screaming from the building. Can he force you to love him? No. no, love by definition must be freely given. So if he truly did love you, ladies, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's exactly what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Christ. He sends us the Bible. He sends us Pastor Colin and Amanda and Pastor Bruce and all the people around Kensington Temple here. And if we, and he may even send your dream or a vision. And if you keep saying, no, 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 I don't want you, God will leave you alone. He will give you up to your own desires. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go our own way. And then eventually God says, I'm going to give you up to your own desires. And you'll be separated. Look, if there is a God, and there is, and there is an afterlife, and there is, there's only two possible destinations. You're either going to be with God, that's heaven, or you're going to be separated from God, that's hell. You might say, what's so bad about hell? What's so bad about being separated from God? I'll be down there with my buddies. Who said there's buddiness in hell? <laughs> right? There's no buddiness in hell. In fact, do you realize that everybody, regardless of whether or not they're a Christian, gets some of the common grace of God right now? Everybody experiences relationships. Everybody experiences love. Everyone experiences hope for a future. You know, his rain falls on the just and the unjust. But I want you to imagine a place where there are no relationships, where there is no love, where there is no future, there is no hope. There's just stone cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. <laughs> no, that actually is hell. You're separated from the only ultimate source of goodness by your own choice. And by the way, if you read the scriptures, if you go to Luke chapter 16 with Lazarus and the rich man, is the rich man asking to get out of hell? No, he just wants to still treat Lazarus as his servant. He doesn't even get it. So if you truly want to be with Jesus, you will be. 
If you won't, if you don't want to be with Jesus, he'll leave you alone. Because as C.S. Lewis said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. He said, either those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. That's it. Which kind are you? Are you going to be the one who God says to you, thy will be done? If so, you're going to be separated from him. He will respect your free choice enough to let you go. So let's summarize this whole thing. Does evil disprove God? The answer is no. Why not? Because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. What's, God, what's the purpose of evil? Well, there's a lot of purposes for evil that God can use. He can bring, a, bring us to himself. He can enhance our character. He can use the ripple effect to bring good later on, even if we don't see it. And what's God's solution to evil? God suffers himself and takes evil upon himself. And you know what the ultimate solution is? God quarantines evil. He puts it in a place called hell, where he's not, or where evil will no longer affect any of his creatures or creation any longer. Now, that's the chapter on evil. If you want to get the book, you can... We were going to cover reason and science tonight, but we decided not to, to do this evil. If you want this PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format, put that in your browser, crossexamine.org forward slash SFG, stealing from God, and we'll send it to you in a PDF format. We don't uh, share that with anybody else, your email address, but if you want it, you've got to type that into your browser. Also, like our, our, uh, our Facebook pages. We have two of them, crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turek, Dr. Frank Turek, like those pages. Why? Because if you like those pages, we put out several videos every week, short videos, normally Q&A videos from the college campus that you can share with other people. If you send them an hour-long video, they're not going to watch it, but they may watch a four-minute Q&A video, right? So like those pages. We're also on YouTube, we're on Twitter, and as I mentioned the other day, we've actually combined these three into one social media platform. We call it UtwitFace. All right? So you may want to sign up for that. We're on radio and TV, uh, but it's not on here, but it is. You can access it off uh, the Cross-Examined app. So like the, or uh, download the Cross-Examined app. Uh, two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. It has the TV show streaming, has the radio show and podcast, and it also has a quick answer section. What's the quick answer section? Some of what we just talked about tonight is already on the app, like that little video. It's on the app. So you might be having lunch with somebody, and they say something that's wrong about Christianity. You're not quite sure how to answer it. All you need to do is take out your iPhone, your droid, or if you're one of the 13 people in the, in the world with a Windows phone, it works on that too. All right? And as the other person's talking, you can go, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. Hey, what about this? All right? Because there's answers right there on the app. You don't have to have all this stuff memorized. So where is God? Well, you know where God was. He was hanging on a cross. So he could take evil and suffering on himself. So ultimately, you would be free of it. Do you want to be free of it? Let's pray. Father, you came to earth 
and you died a brutal death after living a perfect life for our benefit. And by trusting in you, we can have our sins forgiven.